Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. Each week, as we delve into the foreign policy subjects uh, that we talk about here on the show, we always arrive at the same question. Who's driving this narrative? Who's shaping the perspective? Who's giving us the information uh, here in the United States for the general public to decide on how they feel? How do they feel about the Palestinians and the Israelis? How do they feel about the Iran nuclear issue? Uh, And to discuss all this, I've decided this week to bring in uh, two of the most fantastic journalists I know who are covering the Middle East and foreign policy, um, from the nuclear deal to the Abraham Accords, to Gaza, to Israel, uh, to make sense of all of this. I'd like to welcome Benjamin Wienthal, a fellow at the nonpartisan DC-based national security think tank, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, FDD. Uh, He's also a correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. You can see his pieces and exclusives all over social media. And of course, Adam Credo, senior writer reporting on national security and foreign policy for the Washington Free Beacon. He is an award-winning journalist. He's broken news across the globe, been featured in Wall Street Journal, Weekly Standard, Commentary, Drudge, the Jerusalem Post, and many, many others. And of course, Adam gets some fantastic scoops and uh, of, of course, also on Twitter and all over social media. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Uh, there's so many journalists covering uh, these issues uh, for the mainstream media, for online publications. Um, and, you know, I've, I've chosen you two because, first of all, I know you both very well. And secondly, I know how hard you work at getting the scoops that you get. You've both been killing it, uh, especially as of recently, um, been consistently reporting on these very important issues particularly when it seems like other people are giving up the opportunity to do so. Um, So I thought it's worth a conversation to talk about the challenges that you guys are facing day in and day out. I know it can't be easy. Maybe it appears easy to others in the audience who may not be um, aware of what's going on behind the scenes. But I think nowadays it's pretty obvious um, the challenges we all face uh, for, for a free press, for free speech, for uh, social media freedom. Um, I mean, that is, it's like a, a, a category unto itself, right? Banning the, the former president from our platforms. Uh, who else gets banned? If you say something you don't like, someone doesn't like, you get canceled, you get fired. I mean, there's so much going on, but I want to ask each of you, Benjamin, I'll start with you. Um, what are some of the challenges you face daily in covering the areas that you do? Well, again, uh, thanks for having me on your show, Lisa. It's um, it's a real pleasure and honor. Um, I've followed your show and uh, your writings for, for years. Um, I, I think the real challenges right now are to, um, to folks, in terms of the uh, Iranian regime and uh, the nuclear negotiations in Vienna, the challenge is to um, highlight um, Iran's illicit behavior. Um, both Adam and I have, have recently written articles about uh, Iran's illicit uh, nuclear weapons procurement activities in Europe. And um, that's the stories were picked up by outlets in the Middle East. I'm currently in Jerusalem. Um, so outlets in, the, in Saudi Arabia and the UAE um, have, have picked up these stories, but they haven't reached a broader audience, uh, I think, in, in the Western world, in the United States, including uh, Western Europe, because 
um, a lot of these countries in Western Europe um, are not, I think, as assertive as they should be. And I'm talking about the press here in these countries uh, in uncovering what Iran is doing on their soil and why uh, the Iranian nuclear deal has some severe weaknesses that does not prevent Iran from building a nuclear weapons device. I mean, why? Is, I mean, I want to I want to follow up on that because I think it's very interesting that you you pointed out that the European journalists and I would argue uh, American mainstream journalists as well are not keen on calling out the regime just like you two are so so bravely and I and it, it's ironic that I say bravely right it's like as clear as day that this regime is you know involved in nefarious activities is is you know making its weapons program more robust by the day is pouring billions of dollars into terrorism but yet they're reluctant to cover it why where does this come from well, the, many of the uh, states that are involved in negotiations right now, for example, Germany, France, Britain, um, have um, interest in reviving the accord because they want to cut uh, energy deals with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Germany is, has consistently been Iran's uh, most important European trade partner, and the business of Germany is export business. Um, a famous WikiLeaks uh, diplomatic uh, document showed that Merkel's business community was exerting enormous pressure on her a number of years ago uh, not to sanction an Iranian bank in Hamburg that allows transactions to take place. And Merkel uh, resisted for a while until the U.S. put uh, um, had to clamp down. So I think that's one factor. And I think the other factor is um, Elliot Abrams also pointed this out to, uh, yesterday, excuse me, in his blog over at the Council for Foreign Relations. He was the former U.S. envoy assigned for uh, Iran that uh, a number of the important U.S. publications, I think he cited the Washington Post and New York Times, have not picked up on the recent reports about um, Western intelligence agencies in Sweden, Holland, and Germany disclosing that Iran has worked on a nuclear weapons device in 2020 and sought to secure technology for a weapons of mass destruction program. So I thought that was also very interesting. I should note that the Washington Free Beacon, where Adam works, and Fox News, where I uh, contribute articles to, have reported on uh, these intelligence documents. Right, and uh, I, I remember, Adam, I think you, broke the story in terms of the, the, the American media. Um, and, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know if everyone's familiar with it. We try our best, right? The three of us and many others, we try our best to spread this information on social media and elsewhere where we have access to uh, readers and, and uh, the, our audiences. But uh, as Benjamin very, very correctly said, it doesn't reach all those ears and eyes that it, that it should. Um, can you quickly tell us about that story? And I and I have a few follow-up questions for you as well. Sure. The the one I had was very similar to what um, Benny found. Uh, German Intel essentially concluded that in the last year, 2020, Iran was seeking nuclear weapons technology, weapons of mass destruction technology. And uh, both you and Benny are again right that it's it's wildly undercovered. Um, you would think that a foreign affairs section of a Washington Post or a New York Times might pick up on on this type of report, particularly since they're so eager to cover the Biden administration's renewed diplomacy with Iran. Uh, but yet the coverage of that is usually 
pretty much repeating um, the State Department talking points on it that uh, we're going to ease sanctions and we're doing that because Iran agrees to behave when there really in reality is no indication that Iran is willing to behave, um, which also kind of jives with what I reported just today, the State Department um, in in a somewhat surprising move, I cover the State Department almost exclusively, and I'm in the building as much as possible. Um, it's it's been a bit more difficult in the age of COVID. Mm -hmm. They're not uh, keeping their briefings open to all reporters. Um, I think very importantly, uh, people should know that the State Department right now is keeping their briefings pulled coverage. What does that mean? Only um, the only the uh, anointed members of the press are allowed in there. It's six or seven rotating, and it's your Washington Times, uh, New York Times, uh, Washington Post, uh, CNN. The echo chamber. That's almost precisely right. And right. people like me, even though I'm credentialed, um, cannot get into them now. So we can't ask these questions. Uh, what is your reaction to a German intelligence report or a Dutch intelligence report that finds Iran is working on weapons of mass destruction? How does that influence your position in the negotiations? They're not answering any of these questions. Um, but to go back to what I just broke before we got on the air here is the State Department being very honest for a change and saying that, look, sanctions relief, full scale sanctions relief is on the table. Their exact remarks are we'll do anything that's needed to put us back in compliance with the 2015 accord. And as we here all know, uh, putting us back in compliance means essentially all of the sanctions uh, that were implemented by the Trump administration, those go away. It's, this is tremendous and it's mind boggling. And I'm not surprised that you anticipated my next question, which was um, the tremendous access that you had to Secretary of State Pompeo um, under the former administration. And now you are a credentialed journalist. Um, I mean, this is yes, there's COVID, but th there is such there is such a, um, a pronounced you know change going forward that will be established as as just practice um, where it will be that only the, as you said, the anointed, those that are handpicked, that will, those who will only give a positive, um, you know, report uh, onto the, what the administration is doing and not press back and not ask the, the important questions, as you, as you just said. Um, what are some of the challenges that you face covering the State Department and how do you go around that? Well, look, it, 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 it remains very difficult uh in terms of access, um, you know, all of us are vaccinated at this point. Um, the State Department press corps, uh, which comprises those major publications that I mentioned before, plus others like me who are fully credentialed for access to the building and theoretically should be back in those um, press briefings. But the Biden administration, I think, has found that it was or is um very convenient for them to continue these arbitrary COVID regulations where it's only uh, several people in the briefings and everybody else has to call in over the phone. Mind you, when you call in over the phone, they know what line it is and they can choose to accept your call or not accept your call. I've experienced that um, where you get on the line and you get in the queue to answer a question and you know that you're among the first in there, but yet your question is never taken.
right? I think that's intentional and that right. really is procedurally in terms of performing the journalism an issue because I can't get my questions asked. Uh, luckily over the years, I've been covering state for about nine, nine almost 10 years now. Um, I've formed very good relationships with the public affairs department and I will praise them in saying that they do their very best uh, to get back on my requests for comment. Um, but again, it's written, you know, so you don't you don't get more mm -hmm. of an honest response when it's written versus off the cuff. I think you get more um, a more of a window into the administration's thinking when it's off the cuff and you can question the chief spokesman or the deputy spokesman versus them having time to kind of craft their response. I know we're getting a little inside baseball here, but it is important in terms of the news product that comes out. From that process yeah i think a lot of people are interested in this because it's now you know once we're silencing people because of their opinion that that becomes everyone's issue right um people getting there as i said in the intro you know they're they're getting canceled they're getting their um you know um social media platforms uh suspended and you know this is it's not it's not inside talk anymore this is you know people want to know where their information is coming from you know it used to be that you know a journalist would cover uh you know without slant uh, but I remember the night that President Trump was elected. I was at the headquarters in, at the Hilton in New York City and seeing the press pool that was roped off, seeing them just break down and start crying and not able to, to do their job any further. And it seems like that was the line in the sand, basically, to say, now we are just, you know, we become activists. And you know, that's my next topic that I want to discuss with you guys, um, you know. Benjamin, I know you've gotten people, you know, removed from their tenure at uh, universities, professors who are spewing hatred. You are working towards getting, uh, you know, the Iranian team um, banned from the Olympics because of the execution of that very innocent, peaceful protester, the wrestler, Navid Afkari. You've done some tremendous work with your uh, journalism. And, you know, at what point, you know, um, Obviously, journalism has to be effective, and and that that's the beautiful thing about our work, and and we're blessed to do it every day. But at what point, you know, do we stop and say this shouldn't be our job? We're not activists. We should be the ones telling the truth, and the truth should be understood by all in a way that is, you know, that that's moral. That's just moral. You know, we're not all going to agree on everything. We have different baseball teams, and we have different basketball teams, and we have different you know, preferences in ice cream color, I, I, ice cream flavors, rather. I get all that. We have, we have differences of opinion on many issues, but there are some issues that are just morally right and wrong. You know, Iran shouldn't be able to kill 3,000 innocent people, let's say 1,500 by lower estimates and, and thousands of people by higher estimates, and have people here in the United States in the mainstream media championing or advocating for sanctions to be removed, for us to get back into a deal, to give them billions of dollars to put back into terrorism. You know, Benjamin, my question to you is, you know, at what what has has how has your role as a journalist changed because of the environment in which you're working? Well, I think, you know, in in the in the region that I cover, the, the Middle East um, mainly, and, and um, the interplay between the Middle East and, and Europe, uh, there are more um, stories than journalists. There are more scoops to be uh, reported on, more exclusives to locate than journalists. So it's a bundle of potential for, for journalists who, who, who want to work in the field. And as you mentioned, the Navid of Kari story was a major story that I uh, reported on when it when it first surfaced in uh, late August of 2020, and then um, 
President Trump uh, tweeted my foxnews.com story about Afkari, and that sort of catapulted the uh, persecution of this wrestler before he was uh, murdered by the regime in, on September 12th into uh, media stardom, so to speak. And um, that certainly helped uh, President Trump's tweet because uh, Joe Rogan and other personalities, I think uh, uh, Dana White from uh, the mixed martial art world, who has an enormous following, intervened and tried to persuade the, the regime to uh, not murder uh, Navid Afkari, who simply was arrested and tortured because he protested against uh, regime corruption in, in 2018, a year before the demonstrations you mentioned, where there were as many as 3,000 uh, killings. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that there is a role for, um, I don't like the word activism, as you pointed out, and because that has a pejorative meaning within right. journalism. But I do think there's a role for accountability journalism, impact journalism. It's a very rare thing where you, where journalists, I think, in general can, um, because of their exposés, can influence a change in uh, government policy or perhaps uh, change, uh, um, you know, a, a, a university decision uh, to, in, in the case of a story I'm working now, Oberlin College, uh, mm -hmm. to employ a um, former Iranian ambassador to the UN who covered up the murder, the murders of 5,000 innocent Iranian prisoners in 1988. He's a professor of Islamic studies at Oberlin. Um, he's still working there, but the university has now launched an investigation. He's also demonized the Baha'i, a persecuted faith in Iran. I know, Lisa, you are you know one of the top Iran experts in the U.S., and you, to my uh, great envy, know Farsi, which I wish I knew. Um, mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he's, this is a very bad, uh, unsavory character based on uh, the evidence out there, including an Amnesty International report that says he committed crimes against humanity. So to, to return to your question, I do think there's, the problem I see it right now in modern journalism is the lack of investigative journalism. Jur newspapers have closed down investigative uh, journalism uh, departments. There's, there's not the, the traditional spotlight team, those sorts of teams that are, were, you know, are famous at the Boston Globe. For in, in many of your viewers, I'm sure, saw the film, have now shut down. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of stenography journalism out there where you can't, as Adam mentioned, really confront uh, government spokespeople, whether at the U.S. State Department or other governments, about um, what they're doing, especially in the context of one of the most serious uh, negotiations facing international security, namely uh, the Iran nuclear talks in Vienna, Austria. Right. And it's, you know, the, the question then becomes, you know, that puts us in a position of more than just journalists. And that's that's what I mean by activism. I don't like the word ac activists, but I think that that's the accusation. I think that that is the way that we're perceived when we are uh, out to do this investigative journalism, when we are out to expose, when we're out to you know set the narrative straight, when it is so incredibly flawed. And the Iran nuclear deal, I think, is the, the best example of all of that. I mean, how can the mainstream media bypass all of these human rights abuses? I mean, these are the bleeding heart liberals, and they're just turning a blind eye to journalists being thrown in prison for a mere Facebook post, or you know um, these athletes, you know, women. Uh, 
homosexuals being uh, marginalized in this in that society, and they're closing their eyes to that, and they're choosing to believe a different narrative. Um, you know, it, it's like flopped, right? So now conservatives are all of a sudden all about the emotional, the human rights abuses that are going on in Iran. Those are the ones who are championing their cause on on social media and elsewhere, and the liberals are the ones who are, who are saying no. The deal is what is going to make us. You know, the appeasement is what's going to make this a better world. Um, how did we get here, Adam? You know, it, it, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting evolution in journalism, right? Um, that in past years, and I, I often tell people that um, us here. We are very much dinosaurs in this business. Um, the idea of performing journalism the way that we do is not the way journalism is performed now, um, especially by people younger. They're hired by news organizations and they come from college uh, steeped in ideology. And the ideology really guides their reporting. Now, that can be from a conservative or a liberal standpoint. You see it on both sides. Um, I work for a publication that is considered to come from the conservative side of things, but I would say if you cut the masthead off of any piece of journalism I've put out and attached any other on it, it would read like a neutral piece of news, which is always what I've done and what I go for. Um, but, but in many ways, that's not the case anymore in the macro level, right? Um, that you know, Barry Weiss, uh, who resigned from the New York Times, I, I think has put this very expertly in her writings and various interviews she's done on the topic that um, <clears throat> in these newsrooms, if you're not writing within the ideology and within that box, um, and often for these newsrooms at major papers, it's this woke-ish kind of um, uh, narrative box that they're putting. If you're not writing in that frame, um, you're accused of being a conservative, being a racist, um, uh, caring too much about Israel, as Barry was accused of. And that's uh, very much what we see also in the coverage of Iran, that uh, the administration, when they're answering questions about their diplomacy with Iran, the fundamental underpinning, the ideology here is that of of course it's good to speak with these people. Of course it's uh, good to try to bring them into the community of nations. And when that view is challenged, um, then you're accused of being conservative, being accused of wanting war, um, when really, for at least people like me, these questions are about uh, not coming from a certain ideology. These questions are about understanding where they're coming from, and those questions are not willing to answer. Yeah, it's it's tremendous to me. It's um, you know, like what you said. If you take the masthead mm -hmm. off, your articles could could stand that that test of journalistic integrity, right? Um, but let's say you, um, God forbid, would leave the, the free beacon and try to get a job at the Washington Post or the New York Times. It would never happen. No, they would never hire me, um, which is interesting because, again, I would I would dare anybody to hold that journalism up anywhere. Uh, you know, I was, I was ranting to a friend over drinks last night or the night before um, the Rudy Giuliani story, which is not my bag. I don't really cover much politics these days, but uh, just the idea that the New York Times, the Washington Post and these papers could make such an egregious error and have to append such a retraction and correction to that story. Um, if I coming from a, a paper again, that is seen as coming from the conservative uh, ideology, if I made even the slightest of errors, uh, people would seize all over it and say, look, fake journalist." But there's no repercussions for the other side of it. No, no. And they're actually encouraged to 
move. It's almost like, you know, when, when journalists are chasing a story now, it's that the story is chasing the journalists who already, you know, basically anticipated the conclusion of the outcome because they are, they That's can exactly right. themselves opinion That's exactly shapers. Right. Right. They know where they want to go and what they want to get. And when a source confirms it for them, they willingly print it. There's no critical thinking anymore. They've lost that ability to actually step back from the story and say, should I be trusting this source? The information is too sexy. It's too good. So of course right. they're willing to run with these stories. But what do we do, Benjamin? How do we how do we uh, take the first step in in correcting this as a society, as a as an industry, right here? Well, I, I'm somewhat pessimistic about um, you know uh, uh, reforming journalism right now. Um, I think what um, you know, journalists can do is, is is simply adhere to you know the basic principles of journalism, which is um, when you're verifying sources, you know there should be a, a rigorous journalistic method of verification, and you know double sourcing is always good. Try to avoid anonymous sources as much as possible. You know, and consult with your editor um, if if you're going to use an anonymous source in a rare situation. Um, but I, I think the the way to change things is um, is to push for more uh, investigative journalism that will lead to bigger scoops that will lead to um, you know sort of possibly earth shattering stories um, and that will help um, media organizations um, that are trying to uh, stay independent of ideology or uh, partisan politics and uh, allow those media organizations to garner more readers because in the end I think there are the the readership wants scoops wants break you know breaking news without uh, bias or or um, you know crude ideology and um, that can be done and that helps in the end uh, garner more readers and especially if, if you cover stories as you mentioned Lisa um, you know Iran has, executed since uh, 1979, since the Islamic Revolution until 2008, according to a British WikiLeaks cable, four to 6,000 gays and lesbians. Um, now I reported in 2019, based on a Farsi language news item in Iran, that uh, Iran had just executed a man based on its anti-gay law. And thanks to the then uh, German ambassador, US ambassador to Germany, excuse me, uh, Richard Grinnell, who then went on to become acting director of national intelligence, who's who's the first openly gay cabinet member in the history of politics. He, he served in the Trump administration. He went on record and, and um, launched a campaign to decriminalize homosexuality across the world. So there, there are, you know, there is this interplay between politics and government, especially when there are government officials who who are genuinely concerned about human rights in, in totalitarian regimes. And I think journalism um, also needs to focus on areas of the world that are uh, severely underreported. Again, you know, Iran's an example. Qatar imposes the death penalty on gays. They're going to host the the World uh, Soccer Championship, I think, next year in 2022. Um, ten, I think, thousands of migrant workers have been murdered, have died during the construction of soccer stadiums there. These stories, you know, don't get much attention, um, and there are reasons why they don't get much attention, in my view, because these regimes are um, spend a lot of uh, money to lobby 
uh, in the United mm -hmm. States, especially mm -hmm. Qatar, and I would argue Turkey. And they don't seem to be uh, front and center in the U.S. media reporting. And I think there's got to be a shift because, again, I do think Americans are genuinely interested in knowing what countries are lobbying the U.S. Right. government and, and how does that affect us as American taxpayers. Yeah, I think you you really you hit the next um, topic, you know, and and beautifully segued us there. I think the question for many, you know, average Americans, I hate to use the word average because they're not average. They're wonderful information seeking people that do not have access to certain information. So these people that are reading the mainstream media that are, you know, that if, when you make a statement like that, that these countries are influencing our government, are influencing our media, their immediate question is, wait, but how? They're thousands of miles away. How are they doing so? And I don't think I, I don't think it's common knowledge uh, that these countries, uh, these regimes have ambassadors working right here in the United States, many of whom are in Washington and many of whom are working in the White House. People don't understand this. They don't get this. Particularly, the, you mentioned, Qatar, you mentioned uh, um what else did you, what other country did you just mention right now? We had Qatar, we had uh, Turkey, Turkey, but I would say the next, the other one that is the most important, I think, is the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime and its tentacles here in Washington, in Los Angeles, in New York, in um, creating not just a think tank, not just um, different media, having access to different media uh, outlets, but truly making a difference in all different uh, sectors of society. They have comedians, they have people in Hollywood, they have all these different Trojan horses to affect uh, opinion. Um, now, in your work, uh, Adam, as, as a journalist, I mean, how, how relevant is that? And I'll give some examples so that people can understand what I'm getting at. We have journalists working for the New York Times. We actually invited one of them here today. She's an Iranian uh, who works for the New York Times. We wanted her to join this conversation so that she can perhaps tell us about her perspective and why she reports the way that she does. Um, and there are many others. I don't want to single just one out, but we have many, many Iranians working here in the United States in the capacity of journalists and activists and human rights experts and pundits, um, professors, as Benjamin stated, that are really controlling the narrative as to getting back into the nuclear deal, as to whitewashing the crimes of the Iranian regime, uh, removing the sanctions and making it all about the people. Uh, NPR recently did a slideshow, the beautiful dreams that are burnt, portraits from Iran under sanctions, uh, which I tweeted and said, well, where are the portraits from the people suffering under 42 years of tyranny under this regime? Um, so, you know, it's pick and choose and they so beautifully package this. The Iranian regime's propaganda handbook doesn't stay in Tehran. It's made its way to Washington. Um, and, you know, I, my question to you, Adam, is how has this affected your work? What have you seen them do um, that our audience would be interested in seeing the influences of these tentacles here on U.S. soil? Yeah, the, there's, a, there's a whole host of things, and it goes very deep. And, uh, uh, both you and Ben are right to point out that it's it's not just the Iranians. In in fact, it's probably to a lesser extent than the foreign money um, wars in Washington D.C. is one of the most fascinating topics you can dig into, and one of the most complex topics because um, that foreign money touches so many different things. Uh, that is money from Qatar, Turkey, um, to a lesser extent Iran, and many others. There. Um, hiring high-priced think tanks, they're hiring high-priced law firms, high-priced 
PR shops. So uh, you can imagine the influence is pretty much everywhere. And in DC, which is a relatively small town, um, it's not too difficult to get a critical mass in your pocket, so to say. And that does influence coverage because the reporters go to the think tanks. The think tanks are paid by these foreign governments um, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, speaking to Iran specifically, um, you have several think tanks. Uh, I'm sure you know Nyack very well, and Ben does as well, um, headed by Trita Parsi, or was headed by Trita Parsi, who's really been a regime advocate and anti-sanctions voice and has ingratiated himself with um, virtually all of the um, major players in a Biden administration, Obama administration, the um, veterans of Democratic administrations. Uh, I reported back during the Obama administration that Parsi and um, other prominent uh, Iranian regime sympathizers were hosted at the White House dozens and dozens of times. And you can imagine all the things they were talking about there. So the power really reaches um, to the upper echelons. And, uh, you know, even somebody like the U.S.-Iran envoy now at the State Department, Rob Malley, mm -hmm. this was a guy who was originally fired from Barack Obama's first campaign for holding um, unauthorized talks with the Hamas terror group. So this really shows you the uh, perspective that these folks come from. Um, there's another one that I think bears mentioning, the Quincy Institute, a very innocuous sounding think tank where uh, Trita Parsi now works as uh, one of the top officials over there. This is uh, a think tank that's funded by uh, both the Kochs and George Soros. They've mm -hmm. tag teamed on this. Um, and it shows you where their ideolo uh, ideological bent dovetails. And that is things like legitimizing an Iranian regime that wants nuclear weapons, that is saying that the U.S. has locked itself into forever wars and we should not even have a presence in the Middle East. That's very much where you see the intersection of these kinds of ideologies. And um, the money is is a lot more than one could imagine. Uh, they don't disclose as much as they probably should, uh, but this money is the thing that influences stuff like that echo chamber, that pro-Iran echo chamber that played such a uh, integral role in, in pushing that 2015 accord. That money was moving between think tanks, um, between prominent academics, between um, even journalistic outlets, um, in NPR and a PBS, people might be surprised to learn have taken money from an organization that's called the Plowshares Fund. Um, they they were a nonprofit that gives grants, and one of their chief things was pushing the Iran nuclear deal. So the money is everywhere, and um, not enough of it is really known. I mean, this is I know all of this, but to hear you outline it. You know, the, consecutively, the way that you... you it's a subject that I've dug into a lot and could talk about for days. I did a podcast just a month or so ago. We spent an hour talking about the foreign money and the influence in D.C. And even though we have things like FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, that's a law that mandates anybody working on behalf of a foreign government disclose their activities. In theory, that's good. The problem is it's almost never enforced. Mm-hmm. And well, that's the issue here, right? If anything was enforced, none of this would have, ha we wouldn't have gotten to the point we have, let alone, I mean, think tanks can develop and nonprofits can develop, NGOs can can do what, what they want and if they can raise money, well, we can't stop them. Um, but what we can 
stop and with what you'd think would happen is that you wouldn't allow these individuals to be chosen to be cabinet members. You wouldn't think that Trita Parsi would be invited to the White House 26 times. I think it's in the archives. Um, I heard that number thrown around. Don't quote me on it, but something along those lines. I mean, you, you don't even go to your best friend's house 26 times in a short period of a, a few years. So um, it's it's tremendous to look at the access which these people are given uh, to, you know, to, to spew their hatred for America, to bring people like Javad Zarif onto CNN for a primetime interview so he can spew more hatred um, for the Americans and to blame everything on America, um, just fits into their narrative. Uh, Benjamin, how, I mean, how... What could we do to expose this? I know that it's it's very difficult to say, you know, we know all of this, right? I mean, in our inner circles, we can say, this is where the money is coming from. This is what they're using the money to do. And their goal is to push this agenda. Now, other than the, the investigative journalism, I mean, how can we get more outlets onto this? How can we get more individuals to understand about this? And how can we do so without getting shut down? Well, you just mentioned uh, Mohammed Sarif, um, the Iranian foreign minister, Iranian regime foreign minister. And I, I just wanted to follow up on that because um, what I find unsettling is um, Sarif in 2019 um, in Tehran uh, defended the Islamic Republic of Iran's uh, law uh, mandating the uh, execution of, of gays and lesbians. Um, a German reporter, a gay German reporter from the Bild, uh, who asked him a question about why uh, the regime executes gays after my article appeared in, in the Jerusalem Post. And Sarif said, this is essentially Islamic morality in our land and, um, and went on to continue to defend uh, lethal homophobia in uh, Iran. Now, what I find unsettling is that Sarif has given scores of interviews in the United States with large media organizations since uh, that uh, press conference in Tehran in 2019. And there has been one question about why uh, he defends uh, lethal homophobia in Iran and why you know the, the, the country continues its policy to uh, wipe out its uh, um, struggling LGBTQ community. Um, so, you know, that I find very frustrating, um, especially um, when we have very sophisticated journalists who can just pose the question um, and it, it's ignored. I mean, it's a, it's a life and death question. Um, it, it affects it, people in a life and death way, I, I mean. Um, what else can be done? I think, um, you know, uh, um, an educated um population like the United States can start to um, ask questions of journalists and push journalists uh, to pursue um, other lines of inquiry, other narratives, um, and um, hold not only U.S. government officials accountable, it's, you know, especially officials, as Adam mentioned, who are um, promoting a, a new, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, rejoining the nuclear deal that will allow Iran within 10 years to, to build a nuclear weapon, um, to hold those officials accountable. That is, journalists should be um, confrontational, assertive in questioning these officials and digging up material about what's happening uh, in these negotiations. 
but also asking foreign officials. I mean, there are still news organizations across the world, uh, CNN, Fox, other news organizations uh, that have correspondence in, in foreign countries, Washington Post. I think Fox News dot, uh, does, a, does a terrific job, um, but other news organizations that have journalists spread across the world certainly could um, expose what's happening uh, in those countries in terms of um, uh, unsavory deals. One example I, I, I'll, I'll mention, and I'll, I'll end it here on this point, is the German ambassador to the United States uh, aggressively pushed uh, to lobby um, the uh, Congress a number of years ago, this was during the Trump period, to uh, not oppose the Nord Stream 2 energy project between Germany and Vladimir Putin. So this is a, a, a massive energy deal that would advance the interests of a, a ruthless a, a authoritarian leader, Vladimir Putin in Russia. And basically, and Trump and, and the Trump administration has made this uh, point a number of times, would permit, would, would ensure that Germany's energy policy is dependent on uh, Russia, a, a major adversary of the United States. So the, the German ambassador in Washington was running around and aggressively lobbying uh, U.S. Congress. And as far as I know, I, 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 there were very few publications in the U.S. that reported on this. I think mm -hmm. maybe Free Beacon did. I, I'd have to check. But the point is that it was it was a German paper picked it up, the bill, and reported on it. But it it then sort of died a natural death. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder, though, um, based on what both of you were, were telling me, it, it, it reminded me of my own experiences in covering a lot of sensitive topics and then getting death threats and then getting my website potentially hacked into. I mean, they didn't, but they but they try and they keep trying um, and they're trying to silence us by by intimidating us. Um, I want to ask both of you that question. Benjamin, I'll start with you. I mean, have you faced any of, of these threats or um you know anything that would kind of tell you that they they want you to stop doing what you're doing that you're going too far i mean there's always you know this these this type of rhetoric on social media i mean i'm active on twitter i'm not on facebook and i've experienced you know these types of threats or uh you know the qatar qatari regime uh, blasted me on its uh washington website for its embassy based on a report i did uh, showing, uh, revealing that a uh, that Qatar um, reportedly financed uh, Hezbollah, a U.S. designated terrorist organization in Lebanon. I did a big story with a, a colleague of mine here uh, in Israel, Jonathan Spire for FoxNews.com, and Qatar, you know, issued that type. Of, it wasn't a threat, more of a you know, it just showed that they they don't appreciate how free how the freedom of press works because. You know, there's no freedom. Freedom of the press and in the Qatari monarchy is non-existent. Um, you know, I, I don't. Threats don't bother me. It just it comes with this line of work. Um, you know, death threats come with this line of work. I mean, I reported on the border of Syria and um, Turkey during uh, the rise of the Islamic State in 2013 and crossed into Syria. So you know, heated rhetoric or or rhetoric that's filled with death threats. It it just doesn't me because it's just rhetoric at the end of the day. Um, and uh, I think we just have to, as journalists, just continue to plow through it and not uh, have uh, as many journalists do, I think, especially in Europe, sort of a dangerously thin skin. If 
think, you know, just develop a thick skin, plow forward, continue with your stories and uh, you'll be fine. Yeah. Same question to you, Adam. Yeah, I have to say, luckily, um, in, in terms of threats of violence or, you know, harming my physical safety, I haven't experienced too much of that. Um, on social media, you always have a certain amount of vitriol. There are uh, tons of anti-Semites on, on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere on social media, and um, probably way too many people sitting in front of their computer screens wearing tinfoil hats. Uh, those mm. people are out there. Uh, they exist. The internet is is filled with them. It doesn't bother me um, too much. Um, I, I, I will say though, one of the one of the things that actually is dangerous is when you write critically about foreign governments, and this goes back to um, our conversation about uh, foreign money in Washington D.C. You know, many of these uh, let's call them wealthy, oil-rich nations uh, retain Washington D.C. lobbying shops, and they're very quick to send out a legal letter uh, threatening. Uh, news organizations with lawsuits, with uh, uh, you know accusations of of libel and these types mm -hmm. of things, and I think that's often very effective. Luckily, the Free Beacon, um, we pride ourselves on our accuracy and and fact checking, and um, we've never had a serious issue with that. But you can see how people can use this, especially governments that are being written about critically, how they use this threat of a lawsuit to intimidate reporters, to intimidate news outlets against mm -hmm. performing this type of journalism. That frightens me more than anything else because there are a lot of smaller players um, that I think could be influenced, could be intimidated by these tactics. And of course, it's not very expensive for, uh, again, these oil-rich uh, Middle Eastern nations to just have their lawyers in D.C. fire off a letter or uh, words. I've certainly been on the receiving end of them in the past. They've never materialized into anything because at the end right. of the day, the journalism is is factually accurate. Um, but but that, I, I think, is much more chilling than the threats of violence, uh, or at least from my end, are because I, I just haven't experienced too many serious threats of, of uh, you know, to my safety. Well, let's keep it that way, right? <laughs> well, I I want to end the program here. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I thank you both. And I encourage everyone out there, if you're interested in these topics, these guys are the star players in the arena. Uh, I will, and I have, we have been, my producer has been uh, putting your handles on the bottom of the screen here. And we will again promote this across social media so that people can follow you and follow your work and keep up with the breaking news out of the Middle East that you're not seeing anywhere else and out of the State Department. Keep pressing them and keep being brave and keep telling us the truth and reporting the way that you do. And I thank you both. I appreciate you both. And I hope you'll be back on our program soon. And for the rest of you who'd like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, you can go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. You can also get our podcast wherever you get your podcasts on all the popular platforms. And if you'd like to sign up for our daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com slash newsletter. You can sign up there. See you all next week.